Warning, this podcast contains heavy spoilers for not just one movie, but entire franchises. We highly recommend going and watching these movies before listening to us as a companion piece that stitches all the timelines into one creepy, crime-ridden story. There will be no more spoiler warnings. We do not break character. After this, there is no turning back. You've been warned. Hit the music. <laughs> you are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Hello and welcome to It's Alive Alive Podcast. This is a true crime paranormal interstellar podcast covering unbelievable stories that sound like they were ripped straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. I am your host, the man of many names, the outlaw Harley Ray, the bruiser Bronson, Dr. HR Smokenstein, THC, or you can call me Josh for short. And with me as always is my very own Scream Queen, the perfect combination of beauty and brains, the bride of Smokenstein, the India Harley, the expert, the guts and gore, the gorgeous, the sexy Amy Rose. Now... If you're here to listen to the debut episode of It's Alive Alive podcast, well, tough shit. It's gone. It's been taken away by the proper authorities and locked into the warehouse at the end of Indiana Jones. Yeah, so when we started the project, the goal was always to create the best shows possible. Like shows that we could take pride in and that were worth listening to. So quality means a lot to us. That being said, when we listened back to the debut Ghostface trilogy of episodes, while we were proud of the story we told, and it's the same story that makes up this episode today, we felt it was our duty to the listeners and to the story to go back and make the episodes we had set out to make on day one. When we first recorded the original episodes, we were still finding our voice, and so we had an idea of what we wanted, but we still hadn't figured it out. Over the past few months, we feel we've started to deliver better and better shows, but the feeling that something was missing from our debut bugged me. So for that reason, we're going to do exactly what the movie studios do and hit the reset with an It's Alive Alive reboot. Today, we're going to retell the story of the Ghostface Massacres that ran from 1996 to the year 2000. Same narrative, new comments and discussion and buttloads of enthusiasm and energy and the, the original, which survives only on Patreon, was very monotone. So just like the legendary galactic historian George Lucas, see episode 14 to get that reference, we're going to get into the story again, remastered and retold in ultra high definition awesomeness. Except for a podcast, so... No, it doesn't matter. None of it matters. It's all just made up of Matrix bullshit. So sit back, put your earbuds in your ear holes, and let's get into this story one more time. (laughs) (laughs) The story we're going to start today is about a little town in California that suffers from a violent curse, spanning over 25 years and spawning 12 killers over six separate massacres. It will be difficult for anyone who is a true crime horror fan to not have heard the case of Woodsboro and the Ghostface Killers. This bizarre series of events has spread through generations, infecting one or two disillusioned teens every few years, with the results yielding a body count of 48 victims, most of those being teenagers. For us to cover this story as a whole, we need to break them up over three episodes 
focusing on the first set of killers today and looking at the first run of copycats and possible conspiracy angle over the next two episodes. Like I said earlier, this story stretches over 25 years and there's a lot of story there to tell, but mashing it all into a few episodes is very difficult and could get a little repetitive. So what we're going to do is focus just on the first three sprees that occurred between 1996 and the year 2000. And over time, I'll share the rest of the stories with you because I think each of these attacks really deserve their own episodes in Spotlight. Today, our focus is on the OG killers, the original ghostface Billy Loomis and Stu Mocker. Our sources for the story are the books Wrongly Accused and The Woodsboro Mur- Murders by Gail Weathers and Out of Darkness by Sidney Prescott, along with excerpts from the journal of Stu Mocker. So Gail is like the main source for all these stories. Like She's literally written the book on the ghostface killings, hasn't she? That she has. For each spree, there is an accompanying book written by Gail. She's actually taken a lot of shit for this over the years. Some people blame her books for the ongoing attacks, with each release being adapted to film and eventually inspiring the next round of Ghostface attacks. So when it comes to Stu's input here, we use the word journal loosely because it's more like a scrapbook of death and thoughts. And what we use from the book are the little bits that made sense and were relevant to our story. See, I used to have one of these copies, you know, the ones covered in upside down crosses and pentagrams with metal lyrics and pics of hot got girls pasted on the pages. Yeah, I had one of them. Hot got girls and all. Right. <laughs> no, I had uh, your man from him on my Bill phone. Vallow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I follow him on Facebook. He's a bit. Is he still around? Yeah, I don't think he's in. I think him are a separate thing without him for a good <laughs> while now. Oh, I totally would have thought he was dead at this stage from cancer. I mean, that man used to brag that he preferred the small, uh, he preferred Marlborough to air. Yeah, I, I read that. Uh, but I literally saw a quote from him in the last few weeks that came from like the early 2000s. And he was like, was it drinking and sex or smoking and sex? He doesn't really do either. That they were uh, very infrequent and he got little pleasure from either. Smoking insects. It sounded like it you were saying smoking insects. Oh, smoking <laughs> insects. <laughs> I don't anyone gets any pleasure from smoking insects. No, it's a very fucking either, weird thing to do. It was either smoking insects or maybe alcohol insects. Oh, there's a spider lighter up. <laughs> she checked her shoulder when I said there's a spider. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. So our story begins in Woodsboro, California in 1978 when Billy Loomis was born to parents Hank and Nancy. To the locals of Woodsboro, the Loomises were your typical upper middle class family with Hank being the family's main breadwinner as a pretty accomplished lawyer. In Hank's early days, he had built a pretty good reputation for himself working for Sunrise Studios in Hollywood, eventually becoming lead lawyer for the studio. It was from this experience and the reputation built by Hank at the time that he was able to open his Woodsboro practice and from that position he had done pretty well for himself in turn allowing nancy to stay home and focus on being the primary caregiver to their only child billy lucky sounds like a good lawyer would come in handy for billy later got it for you (laughs) (laughs) from what we know of billy's early childhood it was pretty average and uneventful there's no major stories or warning signs of what billy would eventually become and he is described as a good well-mannered child who really didn't cause his parents any real problems He was just your average normal kid in what looked to be a pretty normal American family. So no unusual serial killer signs here. No Billy Bedwetter in the Loomis house. I wonder if they had any pets though. How did he treat them? So what we're talking about here is the McDonald triad. 
The McDonald Triad posits that animal cruelty, fire setting, and bedwetting in childhood is indicative of later aggressive and violent behavior in adults, particularly homicidal behavior and sexually predatory predatory behavior. I said that very seductively. Sexually predatory (laughs) behavior. (laughs) That wasn't a good or Josh either. That was a Christ. (laughs) However, other studies claim to have not found statistically significant links between the triad and violent offenders. Further studies have just suggested that these behaviours are actually more linked to childhood experience of parental neglect, brutality or abuse. No shit. Yeah. Some argue this in turn results in homicidal proneness. The triad concept as a particular combination of behaviours linked to violence may not have any particular validity, however, and it has been called an urban legend. I mean, I think it is. I think it's been proven now that it's not it's true. It's just like a lot of coincidence. I mean... Well, no, I think that was an urban... No, I think definitely if they're killing animals, that's a sign. That is fine. That's fine. Clear. But the bedwetting thing... Ah, no, come on, you can't. can't. There's That's... a lot of millions. I would say abuse and fucking parental neglect and brutality will be the higher up reason. But than I mean, pissing like, the pa- your pants every now and again. But if you have a neglectful parent and, like, do you know, I mean, like, if you watch, like, Song for Raggy Boy and he wets his bed and he's brought out yeah, in yeah, his I underwear and the mattress is put on the back, like, that's neglect, going to, yeah. yeah. And, and so abuse, it, it is so, kind yeah. of a secondary kind of. And I think I remember. I'm not 100% sure, and I have said before, I hate when podcasts like just spout out shit that they don't know what they're talking about, and you know it's wrong. <laughs> but I think it was, it, no, it wasn't Egin. I was going to say it was Egin. It was uh, Gary Ridgway, yeah. the Green River Critic yeah. Killer. As far as I know, he used to have wet the bed, and mm-hmm. his mother used to kind of embarrass the shit out of him for yeah, it. Yeah, like, I think I remember like, reading that about him. Go out and beat him for it and fucking make him wash up it and just wash the dirty sheets. And Of all the things you could do to a child, I think that's one of the worst is is, is shaming them like that for wetting the bed. Oh, you you yeah. are going to feel that anyway, regardless of what age you are. I mean, you see that, I mean, that, that kind of like shame, you don't need it reinforced. No, no. I, I mean, like you said, so I think that kind of fits more into the triad because of parental neglect. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I don't think it's an actual symptom of a serial no. killer. No. You know, and even like if you're an extremely nervous fucking person or a person with high anxiety, a child with high anxiety, yeah. that's uh, strong possibility to with themselves. Yeah, yeah. So. Anyway, at some point in middle school, Billy met and befriended local horror nerd Stu Mocker. Stu was also born in 1978 and grew up in 261 Turner Lane, Woodsboro, in a large farmhouse with his parents and older sister, Leslie. Now, I have to point out at this stage, we don't have a lot of information on Stu's early life as his family have stayed pretty tight-lipped on the subject of Stu, turning down many highly lucrative interviews, movies, TV and book deals over the years. Understandably, they want to try and forget about the massacre and to live their life as best they can under the circumstances. They have since left Woodsboro and have tried to make themselves almost anonymous to the outside world. It's for this reason that we don't directly name them here. I'd like to respect their wishes and just leave them be. If you really need to know more about them, I'm sure you could just Google them in your own time. But remember, there are victims in this story, too, who also lost their lives to their son's actions. Maybe it's just time to let them heal and get on with their life. Yeah, everyone forgets about the families be victims, too. But that's it. I mean, like, I was just listening to something about the BTK killer's family, and they had to change their name and everything. And apparently a lot of them do that. I mean, like, Ted Bundy's got a daughter out there somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd change my name if I was like, Bundy. still living, apparently, uh, rumoured to be in Seattle, which is where he would have lived, I think, for a while. I think he went to he went to college in Seattle for a little while. 
Okay. I, if you want to know more about that, we, it's on our Real Monsters yeah. anyway, so you can check that out. Yeah. What, what were you asking? Seattle Rough. Seattle Rough? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I uh, I have no idea. It was um kind of the place where grunge was born. I'm Nirvana, thinking of somewhere Seattle, else. No, I'm thinking Pearl of somewhere Jam, else. Though, so it's, a, it's, it's a city and I just can't. can't. Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen that movie, but I assume you have. So did it look rough when you saw it? Well, it's a love story. They're never going to show any city rough. <laughs> well, they're going to set a love story in a rough background. Well, I suppose, yeah. Well, I like, I like, I do like a proper, as in like rose tinted Tron, glasses. Tron Juliet was area for <laughs> Was it? Oh, Tromeo. I thought you said Gnomeo <laughs> and Juliet. I was like, what that was, was a back Romeo garden. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. the gnomes. Right, yeah. yeah. What we do know about Stu is he was quirky, a little eccentric, loved attention, had a dark sense of humor, and a massive love for horror movies, or more specifically, slasher movies. Sounds like I'd get on really well with this guy. This description may make him sound like an obvious suspect, whoops, for the cops when the eventual murders and investigation starts, but to be fair, who doesn't know a kid from school fitting this exact description? As I just said myself, I could have been this kid, only I was a little more awkward, shy than I was outwardly quirky towards people, you know, that I didn't really know. Yeah, yeah, see, he was a class clown, like. Exactly. Wait, does that make me like a class clown, or the sad class clown? Wanting to entertain, but too shy to perform. That's sad. (laughs) sounds like the perfect description of my teenage years i was a super awkward teen yeah i think i was but everything has that face well you and me have said it multiple times at this point that if we could go back in time and Mm -hmm. be kids again no problem Mm -hmm. but the deal would have to include a clause of we get to skip the ages of 13 to 19 (laughs) absolutely i'd be fine with with 18 just get me to 18 17 maybe I suppose once you get through those, the first half of the teens, you're really through yeah. the worst of it. The second half of the teens is more heartbreak. The first half of the teens yeah. is more awkwardness. I think the second half is like grappling like kind of like new emotions. And then the first half of it is trying to figure out what the fuck to do with your body. What the hell is going on? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think if I could get to just if you like, skip 13 to 16, yeah. just those three years. I'd be uh, happy either. Yeah. Or just like I said to you before, go back into that age, go back to your teens with the knowledge you have now. Yep. yep. Do you know what I mean? That this thing isn't going to matter in 10 years' time, so oh, don't waste three days God, freaking out I'd about be it. running place. <laughs> 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 From what old friends have said over the years, Billy and Stu first started running in the same circles around 1989, 1990, just before their teenage years, bonding over a shared love of all things horror. Together, the two used to spend hours fantasizing about the perfect slasher movie death scenes and how they'd play out, framing the conversations as movie ideas to the outside listeners. But that we know would eventually be played out in real life, leaving six victims and starting a legacy of death that would continue to plague Woodsboro for years after. Again, to me, though, this is normal. I mean, we both hung out with similar groups. We would have been in the metal community, punk, scots, skaters, metalheads, horror goes hand in hand with all these kids. My friend group was a blend of all these subgenres, and this is the type of conversations we had while we watched slasher movies. Yeah, friend group is pretty much the same. So it's really safe to say at this point that being bullied or being outcast or victims in the schoolyard was not the motive for these school-going killers. They were, from what we can see, pretty well-liked and popular guys. They had a pretty good circle of friends, and both guys even had girlfriends. In fact, Stu's third victim was a recent enough ex-girlfriend, and his current girlfriend at the time, Tatum Riley, would also fall victim to his and Billy's real-life horror movie, Massacre. 
this was a huge issue at the time, the whole Columbine effect. Yeah, they went after everything at the time. Comics, video games, music. So obviously horror and slashers would be top of the list when it came to explaining away the violence among seemingly average teens from the late 90s onwards. Introvert teens who enjoyed horror, metal, rap games or comics were seen as public enemy number one. Think like Muslims after 9-11. Serious profile going on here. So Columbine was a shooting that took place on April 20th, 1999 in Littleton, Colorado, a suburb of Denver. The shooting is also commonly referred to as the Columbine High School Massacre with a total of 15 dead. The shooters, seniors Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, murdered 12 students and one teacher and injured over 21 others. The murders came to an end with Klebold and Harris turning the guns on themselves, both committing suicide. The shooting marked the deadliest school shooting in American history at the time. The events of the shooting unfolded within the span of under 30 minutes, with Klebold and Harris arriving at the school at around 11.20am with duffel bags in hand. They first entered the cafeteria with no intention of beginning to start shooting yet. Each bag contained a propane bomb set to detonate during the cafeteria's busiest lunch period. Prior to their arrival at the school, Klebold and Harris had each placed a backpack containing small propane bombs, and a pipe bomb and an aerosol canister at a meadow located three miles away from the school. These bombs partially detonated, alerting the police to Klebold and Harris's earlier activities. Following placing the bombs in the cafeteria, Harris and Klebold went back out to the parking lot to wait for the bombs to detonate. However, once they realized the bombs failed to detonate, they began to make their way back to entering the school. The beginning of the shooting was marked by Klebold tossing a pipe bomb into the parking lot, which partially detonated, catching the attention of surrounding students who were there on their lunch break. Many students were confused, thinking it was part of some sort of senior prank, while others took note of their trench coats and concealed weapons, beginning to run from the parking lot. The first victim claimed by the shooting was 17-year-old Rachel Scott, who was shot while eating lunch with a friend in front of the entrance of the school. Klebold and Harris proceeded to enter the school, making their way to the cafeteria. Upon entering, they were shooting at students in the hallway who were under the impression that the guns they were using were paintball guns, thus continuing to walk towards them. One of these students was sophomore Lance Kirkland, who was shot four times lying on the floor calling out for help when Klebold stood above him and said, Sure, man, I'll help you, to which he shot him in the face. Kirkland survived, and as Klebold walked away, he apologized, saying, Sorry, man, according to Kirkland. Yeah, sure you were, you dickhead. Klebold and Harris passed through the cafeteria, not shooting at anyone. As they made their way to the staircase leading to the library, according to ABC News, witnesses say they were laughing and shouting positive things such as, This is what we always wanted to do! This is awesome! Knobs. At this point in the shooting, the police were made aware that there were shooters in the school through a custodian staff member calling the head deputy. So two of the deputies who arrived were in the process of rescuing two injured students on a hilltop adjacent to the school when Harris noticed the police officers and went back over to the entrance and began shooting at the deputies. They began shooting back and after one of the deputies had fired three rounds of his ammo, Harris retreated back inside with no one hit. The next area of the school Klebold and Harris approached was the library where 52 students, two teachers and two librarians were hiding. In the library, they had an agenda in which they were targeting students of colour and anyone who played a sport at the school. 
According to witnesses, Harris stated that anybody with a white hat or sports emblem is dead, as wearing a white hat at Columbine High School was an athlete tradition. Many students attempted to remove or hide their white hats. Klebold approached a table where three students were hiding under. Sophomores Craig Scott and Matthew Ketcher Ketcher and senior Isaac Scholes. Isaiah. Isaiah Scholes. Upon discovering them and noticing Isaiah, who was black, Klebold exclaimed, I found an N-word. According to Scott, Klebold then proceeded to taunt Isaiah with more derogatory slurs and then shot him, killing him. In the library, Klebold and Harris killed 12 and injured 10. They left at around 11.36am, proceeding to toss pipe bombs into the hallway as they were heading back down to the cafeteria. They made rounds around the school, storming down hallways and looking in classrooms before re-entering the library, which was mostly empty of students, except for those who could not move due to their injuries. According to police reports, by 12.08pm, Klebold and Harris had committed suicide. Following the shooting, fear was instilled in students nationwide. While some schools in the US implemented stricter security measures, such as checking bags and installing metal detectors, there was no action taken at governmental level in terms of policy or legislation. At the community level, there were several accounts of post-traumatic stress disorder and other mental health struggles among survivors, along with a survivor committing suicide a year after and a survivor's mother committing suicide six months after. In terms of immediate responses, the school was shut down for the rest of the year with only two or three weeks remaining. Classes were held for students at a high school nearby. The Columbine shooting raises several important questions relating to gun violence, mental health among teenagers, and to also what this suggests about American culture. If you want to know more about this, I can see in the crystal ball since this is our debut episode that in about 14 <laughs> to 15 weeks time, we cover this on a show called Real Monsters on our Patreon <laughs> in depth. And I mean in depth, depth. Yeah. I mean, down to we were going to go through the timeline of what happened that day. So it's like like time stamped the whole day because this thing went on for it. I mean, I know it's there like a half an hour, but the actual process. Of the cops fucking clearing the building afterwards Aww. took all day. Of course it did that my but dad. Like. They didn't even know how many was in there though. Because, you know, when they were looking, when they were getting um, witnesses coming out, when the students were coming out, they were saying stuff like, you know, like, um, oh, I saw two guys in hats and two guys in trench coats. And then two more come out and the two guys that had taken off their fucking hats. And it's like, mm. well, I saw t- two guys without hats. So to them, it was like, well, we know there's four in there. There's two guys with hats, two guys without hats. There's a guy with a trench coat. There's a guy without a trench coat. They were just fucking taking off their jackets and hats as they were going along. <laughs> just, but, uh, so the so cops they, think they're facing like a so whole they had, army. Yeah, they had no idea how many was in there. But again... We can see, like, the Billy and Stu were not the only ones. I mean, this was something that was mm. affecting the 90s. This seemed to be affecting America as a whole. Yeah. That these kind of... And it was that... Which I'd hate to say it because it does kind of just back up the whole, oh, violence in movies. It was that subgenre, but it was because we were ignored. I say we because I, we were in that kind of like that metal. You were kind of the the freaks and goths and mm. stuff like that, and you were kind of pushed to the side by the fucking athletes and stuff like uh-huh. that. And not that we were no, none of us ever fucking planned to go shoot up the fucking school or anything like that. Uh, most would just be like, yeah, they're dickheads. Fuck them, you know, whatever. But I mean, in America, where guns were easy to get because i mean when we get into the story on real monsters these guys were able to get there was a loophole for them to get these guns 
Do you know, whereas they, if they had went to a gun store mm-hmm. and tried to buy the gun, they'd have to go through all the weights and the checks and all this stuff. But they went to a gun, um, gun uh, Baker? show. Oh, gun show. Uh, and then you have guys selling at stalls. Are you allowed to do that with that oh, gun yeah, shops? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're selling, they're kind of selling them second-hand guns and, second, uh, and, and selling them from stalls and the checks are less. And, uh, so, so can they, a convict go into these shows and buy one? Well, that's... I'm not 100% sure. I always assume so. And I mean, again, you have to realize as well, not everybody there is going to be reputable. So, I mean, even if... Oh, I thought it'd be heavily... if there is some stuff they got to fill out, there, there's always going to be one or two guys there that'll be like, well, you know, I can't sell you this gun here, but if you got the cash, I'll meet you out my car. I trust you, Mr. Mafia, you know? man. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, while things were going well for Billy at school, his home life was a different story. You see, all was not well in the Loomis household, and it would have an effect on Billy that would ignite his thirst for blood and vengeance. At the time, it was a well-kept secret that Nancy suffered horribly from various different mental health issues. And from what I read, Nancy dealt with severe depression, anxiety, paranoia and wild fits of rage almost daily. So this meant Billy was often witness to Nancy violently attacking Hank. 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 As she regularly flew off the handle. Poor Hank. <laughs> mess I, up Hank. I don't know. I could get most fucking average, basic ass American name, and you stumble <laughs> on Hank. <laughs> Tell you what, <laughs> it wouldn't come out. <laughs> <laughs> These fits of rage were known to be extremely violent, with various police reports for domestic disturbances at the Loomis address. The best, to the best of our knowledge, Billy was never on the receiving end of this rage. In fact, quite the opposite. Nancy was nothing but gentle and caring towards Billy, constantly doting on her only child and son. It's funny the way that works. You you have two different types of killers. The ones that aren't hugged enough and then the ones that mommy hugs a little too much. Definitely. And all the overlove stuff is something we're going to come across time and time again. Just wait until we cover Norma and Norman Bates or Pamela and Jason Voorhees or fucking, um, what's his name? Fucking Eggeen and his mother, Augusta. Yeah. <laughs> we cover them on Real Augusta. Monsters as well in a few. Do we? Yes, in a few. They were obviously German, yeah? Augusta was, yeah. yeah. She was a German descent, yeah. She was a German immigrant. Yeah. Um, and hell, we're even going to see it in the next episode when uh, Na- we'll see how far Nancy really is willing to go for old baby Billy. So, Ooh. But for this story, at least Nancy eventually got the help she needed and was put on the medication to help ease her symptoms and improve her quality of life. But with Hank, the damage had been done. And over the painstaking months of Nancy trying different drugs and dosages, trying to find the right combination to get her balanced and right, Hank began to distance himself from the family. Rarely being seen at home during this period, instead choosing to take business trips or to work late and sleep on his office couch. The rare time he did stay at home, he almost always opted to sleep in the guest room and at this point just swap pleasantries with his wife as they briefly passed each other in their halls. That's sad. Now, to be fair to Hank, the Loomises did eventually try marriage counselling and for a while things did start to get better. And that's what made the next reveal a bigger slap in the face for Nancy. About six months into counselling with Hank's back sleeping at home in the master bedroom with his wife, Nancy received a phone call. The anonymous man, which Nancy was once said to have described as cold, creepy and impossible to place her age, told her that Hank had been sleeping with the local woman at Maureen Prescott and that the affair had been going on for years behind her back. No, I don't know what exactly was said in the phone that day because I wasn't there and all involved that were are now dead. 
But the strange man must have been convincing because without confronting Hank and without so much of his thinking about Billy, Nancy packed her bags and bailed while both the Loomis men were at work in school that day, leaving no note or indication of where she had gone or when, if ever, she would be back. Billy was devastated. His doting mother was gone, abandoning him and his father, leaving them in pieces. Billy was angry. Billy wanted answers, answers, but most of all, Billy wanted revenge. Now I kind of feel bad for Billy. He just misses his mom. I say revenge with all that anger and evilness behind it, and you feel bad for the guy. I get it. You, you come home from school one day, and the woman who treats you like royalty is up and abandoning you. It, it's understandable to feel angry. Just most people eventually calm the fuck down and go back to reality. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, cute little sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> But no, Billy, he didn't definitely want to. He definitely didn't want to come back down to reality. And uh, and what about the creepy phone call? All will be revealed soon. You just gotta hang tough until episode three. Oh, cliffhanger! Now, Woodsboro is a small town, and I think most of our listeners who grow have grown up in small towns could tell you that rumors travel fast around a small place like that. So it didn't take long for Billy to get the answers he was looking for, and with Stu in his ear ramping up the fantasies, it wasn't going to be too long before tragedy would hit Woodsboro and would start a curse on a town that still runs to this day. Nice to know that it's not just small towns in Ireland that can't mind their own fucking business. Yeah, he sneezed wrong in an Irish community and it'll be in local announcements at Mass at Sunday. So as I said, it didn't take Billy too long to figure out what it was that caused his mother's sudden departure. And while yes, rumours spread through Woodsboro like wildfire and pretty much everyone knew Nancy had left Hank due to his extramarital misdeeds, what they couldn't tell Billy was who he was cheating with. Ooh, juicy gossip and a mystery. So one night after a marathon session of their favourite killer flicks, Billy and Stu decided to start following Hank. Billy was determined to find a homeworking bitch that had driven his mother away, and when he found her, he planned to get rid of her, opening the door for Nancy to return and for his family to be put back together. So we know Billy's motive, but what's Stu's excuse? Stu's excuse is simple. He's a psychopath. He just wanted to live out his horror fantasies. To be honest, I think people sleep on Stu a little bit. Like you said, Billy has a motive here. Billy had a strained home life and was witness to his mother's violent outbursts, not to mention what he might have inherited from Nancy when it comes to his mental health. Stu, on the other hand, had none of that. Stu grew up in a close and loving family. He was just a spoiled and entitled kid who wasn't spanked enough as a child or you know, maybe spanked a little bit too much, if you know uh-huh. what I mean. Stu was just a psychopath drawn to violence, your average everyday serial killer piece of shit. There's a chance that without Stu's influence, Billy may have even been helped with therapy and may have never gotten past the fantasy, fantasy stage. I mean, we'll see later when we talk about the murders that Stu's attacks were often more violent and theatrical. He was looking for shock and awe. He wanted to be the big, scary killer from the movies, but instead he was relegated to the stooge, the sidekick. Billy's a lapdog. So it sounds like you think Stu is the real catalyst for all the ghost face stuff. I just think he might be overlooked. And maybe I'm giving him too much credit. I mean, there is another version of these events that really downgrades Stu to just another patsy. And it's something we'll discuss in detail in part three of the series. Right now, I'm just working on the information we had roughly around the time of the first massacre. I don't want people to think I'm downplaying Billy's involvement here either. It is super possible this would have played out all the same way without Stu's involvement. I mean, Billy had some serious mommy issues and an all-around deep hatred for nearly all women. But the likelihood really is that Billy and Stu just formed the perfect storm together, and that storm was about to hit the people of Woodsboro hard. 
I've seen pictures of Billy and I think he was born to kill. Uh, he is sleazy and slimy looking. <laughs> if you add in stew, it's definitely not a two heads are better than one kind of situation. Like I can only imagine what two sick minds like that could cook up together. No need to imagine because I'm going to tell you. Because <laughs> this is where the hunt begins. The boys went to work planning their little stakeout, deciding to take it in shifts, tailing Hank until he's bitten aside, revealed herself to them. It didn't take too long for that to happen. That evening, as Billy and Stu sat in the Loomis basement discussing their plan again, they heard Hank call to tell Billy he was heading off for the night. And the guys, being the go-getters they were known to be, sprang to action following Hank to a small motel just at the edge of town. There, Billy and Stu watched him get out of the car, walk to room 203 and knock on the door. It was then Billy saw the face of his first victim and in his mind the source of all his anger, hate and pain. It was a face that he recognised instantly as Maureen Prescott, the mother of his girlfriend of two years and one of the main sources for this story, Sidney Prescott. The big reveal. (laughs) Sidney Prescott at the time was the only known child of Neil and Maureen Prescott. Sidney was your typical good girl next door kind of type. The type you'd be happy to bring home to meet your parents. A near straight-A student, Sydney was rarely, if ever, in any real trouble. And as far as teenage girls go, she was a relatively mature and level-headed girl for her age. Hooking up with Billy in her sophomore year in Woodsboro High in 1994, the two seemed to have a pretty good relationship, with Sydney being completely in the dark in terms of how far her boyfriend's horror fantasies really would go. With everything I've read, up until the first massacre began, the only real complaint Sydney had towards Billy was that he could be a bit pushy when it came to sex, or to be fair, the lack of sex that was going on in the relationship. Sydney was a virgin when she met Billy, and for 99% of the relationship didn't feel quite ready to fully pop her cherry, much to Billy's frustration. Little did she know, though, it was her virginity that was keeping her alive for most of the first attacks, and we'll have a lot more about that a little later in the episode. You know, I used to kind of feel a small bit bad for Billy in that sense, but the information that's come out in the last four to five years... About Mr. Loomis's extra... (laughs) Let's just say him and Hank had a few things in common and we'll get into it in later episodes and we talk about what Billy Loomis might have been up to in the background. But, yeah. (laughs) So, basically, what you're saying is all we have to do is stay pure and keep our legs closed and think of Jesus and serial killers when we go. Don't be spreading that Christian propaganda on this podcast. They want us to keep it in their pants, then they should just keep it out of the playground. (laughs) 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 Billy and Stu sat in Stu's car in the motel car park for hours waiting for Hank to come out so Billy was seething and had nothing but revenge on his mind the plan was simple wait for Hank to leave then grab Maureen as she made her way out to the car from there they would take her to a nearby wooded area and do what they felt was needed to be done Once Hank left, the pair began to pump each other up, really getting the adrenaline pumping. These guys were ready to go, and if Maureen had come out there that night, there is no doubt in my mind they would have killed her there and then. And if they had, maybe they would have been caught, and this would have all have ended with one tragic death. But fortunately for Billy and Stu, Maureen had other plans that night. Much to the surprise and amusement of the two aspiring killers, Maureen wasn't ready to pack up and go home just yet, and about 40 minutes after Hank left, she had another male caller come to her room. This man's name was Cotton Weary. 
Yes, the cotton weary of TV talk show fame, 100% cotton. This is the story that catapulted cotton to fame in the late 90s and ultimately what will bring on his demise in the year 2000. I was a bit young at the height of his fame, but I found links to 100% cotton online in my early 20s and I was obsessed. There's only like two seasons when I first found it. I swear I missed a week of college and just lay around in bed binging on food and 100% cotton. So juicy and wild. I remember some of the episode taglines like the guy who married a horse and <laughs> I'm going to confront my hooker daughter. Good stuff. Solid trash TV. Loved it in my teens, which leads us nicely in. You see, along with being psychopaths, Billy and Stu were also dumb teenagers. And the thought of old Maureen Prescott whoring around town with not one, but two men in one knife, then going home to play perfect mother to sweet little Sydney tickled their funny bone. This moment of levity brought about a little clarity causing Billy to abort the night's plans instead opting to slow down and plan the murder correctly. They wanted to kill Maureen, but they wanted to get away with it too. Using the new addition of Cotton as a pawn, Billy and Stu planned to murder Maureen and pin it on Cotton. They just had to work out exactly how to do that, or at least they thought they did. What happened next was one of the best examples of beginner's luck I've ever heard of. Billy and Stu began to stalk Maureen the very next day and planned to be ready to attack within a month. With Billy making long detailed plans and Stu's ideas for the murder getting grander by the day. In fact they discussed it so much that the excitement overtook them and instead of waiting the month and following their grand plans they instead jumped on the first opportunity they got less than one week later. That's what happens when you get too excited. Things start to happen fast, things that might require a bit more... Time and consideration. Message. The curse of the premature attack. <laughs> premature attackulator. Sounds like a dirty Terminator coming back in time to sexually frustrate you today. <laughs> what a way to go. So on September 28th, 1995, as Billy and Stu watched the Prescott residence from Stu's car a few yards away, they saw Cotton Weary drunkenly make his way up the Prescott driveway into the waiting arms of Maureen. The budding killers were quick to surmise that if Cotton Weary was in the Prescott house, then it's safe to assume that her Neil or Sydney could be there. And unless Maureen was into risky quickies, chances were that they were going to be gone the whole night. This was an opportunity Billy just couldn't pass up, and the decision was made. As soon as Cotton left Maureen alone again in the house, they would strike and Maureen Prescott would die. The first in a long line of bodies. Unfortunately. So around 11pm that night, Cotton fell back out of the Prescott home and into a waiting cab. It was time for the Ghostface killers to claim their first victim. I call them that, but according to Stu's journal, they didn't buy the father death costume for about another nine months. And to be honest, in this instance, it probably suited them better to approach Maureen as is. I mean, Maureen knew Billy as the polite and respectful boyfriend of her daughter, Sydney. And she knew Stu from him dating Tatum Riley, Sydney's BFF. At this point, she had no reason to fear or be suspicious of the pair. Maybe she just thought it was her lucky night. I mean, she did have Hank and Cotton on the same night. I'm not slut-shaming, I'm just making an observation. (laughs) We don't know exactly what Billy and Stu said to gain entry, but what we do know is, once inside, they unleashed a nightmare on this poor woman that would make Freddy Krueger blush. Over the next few hours, they proceeded to rape, torture, disembowel, and stab Maureen, leaving her, in the end, nothing more than a mess of blood and guts. According to Stu's journal, they sat and ate cereal when it was all done, because killing is hungry work, and then relaxed watching cartoons until the sun was about to come up. It was at this point they decided to clean themselves up and leave. 
I wonder is that where BTK got the whole cereal box thing from? Where he hid his messages in cereal boxes around Wichita thinking he was being funny. He was a serial killer fanboy. Maybe he took some inspiration from the Ghostface killers. He was a pathetic little shit. We have a full profile up on him on Patreon. I such a little bitch. <laughs> so far, this was a crime of opportunity for the pair, and they hadn't really thought about how to tie in cotton. But as they were about to leave, Billy spotted a man's jacket. He was almost sure it was the jacket cotton had arrived in earlier, and he couldn't remember seeing him leave when he leave with it when he left. So Billy grabbed the jacket and pushed the sleeve into a pool of Maureen's blood. He then threw it over himself to hide his face as he left the house. It's here the killers hit another massive stroke of luck. Because just as Billy turned the corner away from the house, Sydney was arriving home from Tatum's and she caught a brief glimpse of Billy or more specifically a glimpse of Cotton's jacket. It's all coming up millhouse for these guys. This whole crime couldn't have gone any better for the first for the two first timers. Unfortunately for Sydney, though, being home early enough to spot the killer leaving also meant she was the first to come onto the scene of her mother's brutal murder. And it wasn't too long until the press got home on 34 Elm Street was crawling with cops and reporters. Enter Gail Weathers. Well, yeah, but she was one of many. This crime got a lot of national press. And to be fair to Gail, she's only stuck in the middle of all this because she was very, very good at her job. And because she wrote the best books on the subject. Mm. Gail is a solid investigative reporter. Don't let her more recent morning show fool you. Gail's a good, good, good journalist. Once the investigation began, it didn't take long for Maureen's relationship with Cotton to come to the surface. A relationship Sydney was not ready to accept, and along with the forensic evidence showing Maureen had been raped before being killed, led Sydney to the conclusion that Cotton had been responsible. This tunnel vision would see Billy and Stu stay free men for at least another year and lead to five more deaths in Woodsboro. Sydney's kind of jumping to conclusions here. She just found out her mother was murdered, who was murdered, lived a sexy double life. How would you react? Yeah, innocent or not, I'd want Cotton to hang. I suppose anything linking him would be enough for, for me to condemn him. So the detectives focused their investigation in on Cotton, and after a little digging, discovered Cotton had been at the Prescott home the night of the crime, and that only a few hours before had been stumbling around a local bar bragging about how he was going, leaving to go bang his married girlfriend. From what I hear, this sort of behavior was common for Cotton, who up until this point was seen as a bit of a drunk and a known con man. So it's safe to say Cotton didn't have the best reputation and didn't have a lot of people fighting his corner when the police came knocking. Cotton, if I'm being honest, was his own worst enemy in the story. Uh. And sure enough, when detectives went to question him, was drunk as a skunk and wildly belligerent. No, Now he blames this on gr- the grieving process and looking back with all the information we have now, it probably was. But at the time, he was suspect number one and refusing to cooperate with the cops was not helping that case. He eventually became so agitated during questioning that he got himself arrested and warrants were issued for his home and car along with DNA swabs for Cotton himself. It was with these search warrants that they came across the damning evidence that would seal Cotton's faith. The blood-stained jacket that Billy had left in, a jacket that Sydney instantly identified as the jacket she saw on the killer on that fateful morning. At some stage, Billy or Stu must have planted it in his car, knowing the cops would come to investigate the lover first. With the DNA evidence and Sydney as a witness, Cotton was a dead man walking. And as much as he begged and pleaded his innocence, was condemned to die for his crimes on February 14, 1996. And so on Valentine's Day for killing his lover, Cotton Weary took his place as an innocent man on death row. So that jacket really was the crucial evidence here. 
Yeah, well, Cotton's personality didn't really help. Despite what you see on TV, Cotton is actually said to be extremely unlikable. And a lot of people have said he made himself the main suspect just by being himself. But yeah, the jacket was the straw that brought Cam's back. So with Cotton's conviction, it was official. Billy and Stu had gotten away with murder. And it's quite possible that if they had been able to stop, then our story would end here. But just like an addict, Jones's for a fix, the murder of Maureen Prescott only served as a gateway killing to more mayhem. And as the months passed, Billy and Stu found themselves again discussing fantasies. Only problem is now they had gotten away with it once. And instead of thanking their lucky stars, they just grew more confident and decided to mark the anniversary of their first successful kill with a massacre unlike anything the small town had ever seen before. So you're saying essentially the Pringles slogan applies here. Once you pop, you just can't stop. The Pringles slogan fits many special uh-huh. scenarios. But yes, Billy and, Lu- uh, Billy and Stu popped open a can of murder and they had some serious munchies. The way they saw it, Maureen was just the opening story to their movie. The plot, a plot point that would drive their narrative forward. To be a real slasher flick, they would need multiple victims and a solid lead girl. Or their final girl. The final girl is a trope in horror films, particularly slasher films. It refers to the last girl or woman alive to confront the killer. Ostensibly, the one left to tell the story. But in their movie, the final girl falls to the big bad killers and they would write the final scene, again framing an innocent man for the crimes, allowing them the freedom to plan their sequel. For Billy, there was only one girl that would fit this role perfectly, and that was his long-suffering girlfriend, Sydney. Billy had thought that killing Maureen was going to quench his thirst for vengeance, but since Maureen's death, his anger had simply been inherited by a completely unaware Sydney. The way he saw it, the apple wouldn't fall far from the tree, and that if given enough time, Sydney would turn into a lying, cheating whore just like her mother. Poor Maureen's name is getting dragged through the dirt. So uh, she had a high sex drive. Is it a crime? No, but what about poor old Neil? Oh. Oh, that's right she's married uh, she should have just told Neil what she was into they could have done their thing together yeah maybe I mean it's definitely a modern solution that's become more accepted in society in 2023 but this is 1996 and that generation still lived their public life on strict Christian values and hardcore Christians are known for being relationship experts <laughs> So the plan was as follows. They would wait for Neil Prescott's next business trip and they would kidnap him. They would then proceed to murder a slew of their fellow students before finally killing Sidney and Neil, framing it as a murder-suicide. With the motive being, Neil, driven mad with grief, goes on a wild killing spree before killing his daughter and finally himself to mark the first anniversary of his wife's murder at the hands of Cotton Weary. Billy and Stu would, of course, be the only survivors, shaping the narrative in their favour and making themselves the final heroes in the Woodsboro murders. They got away with it once, and it sounds like it was the same plan again, just a bit grander. I understand why they were maybe feeling a bit cocky and confident about this Mm. one. So on Wednesday 25th, 1996, a little after 10pm, Billy and Stu were ready to shoot the opening scene to their scary movie. The victims for this scene would be 17-year-old couple of Steve Orth and Casey Becker. Casey is the real target here. She was the ex-girlfriend of Stu Mocker and super popular with her peers. Stu knew that taking out Casey first would be enough to cause a huge stir around the town and Billy knew Casey sat next to Sydney in a few classes and saw it as a way to play mind games. For Billy, this all has to link and revolve around Sydney, and Stu was on board for that, but he was more interested in killing and the impact it had 
on the town as a whole as opposed to just Sydney. Makes sense. Stu doesn't really have the same revenge motivation Billy has. Seems like Billy's plight and targets were just lucky convenience to Stu. I think Casey was a Stu target though. Dumping him put her right at the top of his shit list. Yep. Typical butthurt man. Now we don't know exactly how it all went down because again most involved are long dead. What we do know or what we can piece together is all based off of their witnessed crimes, survivor accounts and evidence left behind at the crime scene. We know that just after 10pm, Casey received a phone call from her killer. We know from Sydney's accounts that Billy and Stu like to play with their victims first, telling them that if they play a horror trivia game and get the answers right, they would let the victim go free. But if they got them wrong, they die. The only thing is, usually the final question was something to set up their attack, asking stuff like, where am I watching you from? Or what room in your house am I calling from? This usually left the victim in shock, placing them temporarily in a frozen state of terror, allowing the killer duo to pounce and attack their prey. From what we can tell from the crime scene, at some point during that phone call, Billy or Stu took Steve, who they had taken prisoner on his arrival at the Becker home, and gutted him on the poolside patio, presumably in full view of Casey. While one was outside killing Steve, the other was inside the house getting ready to get Casey. From the mess in the house, it's clear that Casey put up quite a struggle, even breaking loose long enough to get away from her attacker, not realising just yet that a second was waiting for her outside. It was around this time that Casey's parents came home to find the front door open and the house filling up with smoke. Casey had been making popcorn when Billy and Stu attacked and it caught fire just moments beforehand. While Mrs. Becker put out the small fire, Mr. Becker went to investigate. It was he who came across the Steve's disemboweled body on the patio. Sensing he and his wife are in danger, he instructed Mrs. Becker to ring the police and go to find safety at the neighbor's house down the street. What Mrs. Becker heard when she picked up the phone was every parent's worst nightmare. Casey, still holding the cordless landline phone, was desperately trying to call out to her mother for help. And all Mrs. Becker could do was stand by and listen as Billy and Stu butchered her daughter only yards away from her. That is heartbreaking. Pretty rough, all right, and it gets worse. Because if that was the sound of every parent's worst nightmare, then what Mr. and Mrs. Becker saw next was truly a vision from hell. Upon realising the severity of the situation, Mr. Becker ushered Mrs. Becker out to the car. But as soon as she stepped outside the door, all their worst suspicions were confirmed and they found Casey hanging from a tree, her guts lying in a steaming pile by her feet, her face twisted and stuck in a look of absolute sheer terror. Jesus, these deaths are so hardcore and heavy. Like once these guys get into the killer mind frame, they turn into vicious animals. Even the posing of the body for maximum shock, just twisting the knife a little more when it comes to traumatizing Casey's poor parents. Yeah, they really wanted to make a statement with Casey's murder, and it worked. That night put Woodsboro back on the front page and put law enforcement under some real pressure. Before the death of Maureen Prescott, Woodsboro had been voted one of the safest places in America to live. Crime was petty and the violence was usually down to too much alcohol and could easily be solved with a night in the drunk tank. So it's safe to say that the brutality and frequency of the murders over the last 12 months was a lot for the Woodsboro Sheriff's Department to deal with. And while Woodsboro has a top-notch policing unit now, back in 1996 it was a much smaller and more local operation that didn't have, didn't receive a whole lot of funding from the government. The Cotton case fell into their laps and in their eyes practically solved itself in what was viewed as an open and shut case. But now, with the death of the two teens on their hands and the brutality in which they were murdered, the Woodsboro Sheriff's Department had to up their game. 
and had to work quickly to solve the case before any more bodies dropped in their small, quiet town. It was for that reason that on September 26th, the day after Casey and Steve's murder, the Woodsboro Sheriff's Department took over the high school with the plan to question everyone in the school with any link to the victims at all. Classmates, teachers, staff and custodians alike. Sheriff Burke was determined to leave the school with a lead or a suspect that day. But unfortunately, he had no luck. When we say all classmates were questioned, we mean all classmates, and that included Billy and Stu, each using each other as an alibi for earlier in the night and visiting their respective girlfriends later on and fudging the time a little to make it seem like they couldn't have been in two places at once. A gimmick they liked to lean on while people were still thinking the crimes were that of one man. This seemed to satisfy the sheriff, and with a school full of students and staff left, the question was happy to dismiss the pair and move on to his next interview. Oh, so close. Yeah, maybe if it was opposite there. <laughs> yeah, they could have maybe taken a little more time to kind of grill him. Good cop, bad cop. Like, I've read a bit about Deputy Dewey, and I reckon he'd pull off bad cop. No problem. We obviously been reading from different books. The name Barney Fife appears in most of the descriptions I've read of him. Are you saying this man is not a genuine hero? Or hasn't he been involved and stabbed in nearly all three, all of these cases and still always helps bring down the big bad killers? Well, at least that's what it says in the movie. You can be nice. I'll be a clumsy guy and still be a hero. And we'll definitely talk about his contributions to Ghostface Downfall a little later in the story. As Sheriff Burke and Deputy Dwight Dewey Riley interviewed the school, a media circus descended on Woodsboro like a plague of hungry locusts, starved for a scoop and ready to do anything to get it. None more prepared than the woman whose books make up the main sources for our story today. That woman was none other than the celebrity crime reporter, Gail Weathers. Much like Cotton, this story is what pushed Gail from simple reporter to celebrity and to her credit, her first book, Wrongly Accused, was the first bit of media to question the events surrounding Maureen's death. Gail was convinced of Cotton's innocence and planned to make her career off his case. So as soon as she got wind of another murder so close to Maureen's anniversary, she started to hypothesize that possibly this could be the same killer finally proving that Cotton was innocent and boosting her book sales and follow-up book sales in the process. I was watching some of Gail's old news reports on the scene at Woodsboro and I have to say, she is one brave woman. Oh, definitely. I mean, like, have you seen those suits that she used to wear? It takes balls. (laughs) (laughs) Lime green suit is definitely a power move by Gail. 90s girl power all the way, man. I wonder if she was a Spice Girls fan. Yeah, in her dressing room blasting, if you want to be my (laughs) while getting pumped up. (laughs) (laughs) With Neil out of town and her mother's anniversary looming, Sydney made arrangements to stay at Tatum's house that night, not wanting to be alone in the house in the dark with all that was happening. Tatum had been set to collect Sydney at 7.30 that evening, but practice went long and she was running a little late. It was as she sat waiting for Tatum that she received her first call from the killers. Billy and Stu were using an electronic voice disguising box, making them impossible to recognize. And for the next 10 minutes or so, she, they went back and forth, trying to intimidate and scare the brave and defiant Sydney. It's believed that this attack on Sydney was played out by Billy, and at that stage, he was not quite ready to kill his final girl. There was more victims in line ahead of her, but the movie needed tension and good scares. So that's what he set out to do. He was hell-bent on terrorizing Sydney before he finished her off. And even though Sydney didn't know at the time, she was safe from death for that night at least. At this point, you may be asking, why would Billy attack Sydney and leave her alive to tell the tale? Surely now he was rumbled and it would only be a matter of time before the sheriffs would be knocking down his door. 
But you forget, this is a real-life slasher movie. And what's a slasher flick, really, without a scary masked killer? The moniker The Ghostface Killers had to come from somewhere, and it came from a cheap drugstore Halloween costume Billy and Stu used to hide their identity and instill fear in their victims. The father of that costume was nicknamed Ghostface due to its pure white colouring and its resemblance to the Edvard Munch painting The Scream. To be fair, for a cheap Halloween costume, the mask is pretty frightening, and I can imagine it filled the role it was intended for. Why is it that mask killers seem almost invincible? Right, mask on, you're terrified. Mask off, and you'd probably fancy your chances against one of these little shits. Yeah, I know, right? But do you remember we talked about this before when I was wrestling? Mm. Back when I was wrestling, there was a guy. He is, um, he's still he's like the biggest promoter in Ireland, uh, Joker Prey. And oh, Joker yeah. Prey oh, had yeah. two gimmicks. One was Luther Ward, which mm. was a kind of traveler gypsy gimmick. Mm-hmm. And the other was Omen, which was a demon gimmick. And he wore a demon mask. And, and Omen like, was whatever. really scary. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I remember like being uh, at the show and me and Roach were opening and closing the show that night. So we were going to mm-hmm. be opening the show. It was going to lead to the storyline to end the show. Yeah. So we were going to beat up the guys at the end of the, at just the end of our match. Mm-hmm. And then the big baby faces were going to come out and uh, save them and set up the main event for that night. Yeah. But originally, we told we were told that you know Joe was going to be playing Omen that night, and I remember being nervous that I had to wrestle Omen <laughs> that night. And then about a half an hour later, the promoter came back up to us. He was like, uh, "Change of plans. He's going to be Lou Ward." And I was like, "Oh, cool. Yeah, I can be that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Bring him on." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so terrorizing Sydney, Billy chased her around the house, teasing her with his knife, like a cat playing with a mouse, before finally swatting it with its paw to devour it whole. With the doors locked and Ghostface Billy blocking her way, Sydney was left with no other choice but to head up the stairs, essentially trapping her deeper in the house with a crazed killer on her tail. But Sydney did manage to find a little sanctuary up there. She barricaded herself into her bedroom and made contact with the police, noticing almost instantly that she was once again alone in the house and that the prospect of law enforcement had scared her would-be killer away. You'd think with an attack like that and the cops on the way, Billy would want to get as far away from the scene as possible. But the temptation of seeing the terror he caused Sydney and the joy of watching the clueless cops struggle with no solid lead was just too much for Billy. He quickly abandoned his costume and made his way for Sydney's bedroom window, ready as ever to play the role of concerned boyfriend. Idiot. But Billy was cutting it close this time and his cockiness put him in a situation that could have put his plans to an end prematurely. As soon as law enforcement arrived, the abandoned costume was found, and along with a cell phone found in Billy's possession and a close proximity to the crime scene, Billy became a suspect and was taken in by the sheriff for extra questioning. So at that stage in the 90s, we were just getting the hang of cordless landline phones and call cards. Bleepers if you were a doctor or a drug dealer. Mobile phones were only seen in American movies about super rich people, so it was rare for anyone to have one back then. So this is super suspicious. I'd never even seen a beeper in the 90s. We live in Ireland. I think my dad had one. I'd never seen one in my life. Call cards is all I knew, to be honest with you. My dad had one. He definitely wasn't a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Joking. Joking. Absolutely totally joking. (laughs) Uh, that's why they called him Met Dealer Mike. <laughs> what? Oh my God! Now that is too far. I'm sorry, Dad. <laughs> oh. At the station, Sheriff Burke questioned Billy along with Hank Loomis on his whereabouts that night, and again on the night of Casey and Steve's death. 
Billy fed them the story, the same story of being with Stu earlier in Sydney that evening and that he was just called to Sydney's that night, knowing she was alone and wanting to check in on her, swearing he was innocent, claiming his phone record to clear his name. So the decision was made to hold Billy overnight until the records could be retrieved the following morning. Records came back clean. Billy's personal number was not the number used to call Sydney or Casey, even though we know Billy was the one on the other end of the line most of the time. There was also Stu's attempt to get Billy in the clear, again playing on the Ghostface killer can't be in two places at once. Ghostface Stu rang Sydney again that night, teasing her for fingering Billy when obviously the real killer was still free and ready to slash again soon. This destroyed Sydney, who on one hand hated the idea of her loving boyfriend being a psychopath, but on the other was relieved that it might already be over with Billy locked away under the watchful eyes of Woodsboro law enforcement. The killing could stop and she would be safe. But that's not how it all played out. And the next morning, Billy was back in the streets and getting ready to move his killing spree into the next gear. Dude was going into berserker mode and within the next 18 hours more bodies would fall. But what Billy didn't know then was he would also be in that pile of dead bodies. Ending his part in but really just kicking off the beginning of the ghost face saga. So you might be asking how the records came back clean. Well, while that cell phone was registered to Billy Loomis, the number it had cloned to was registered to Neil Prescott. This led Sheriff Burke to look a little deeper into Neil, discovering that he never checked into his hotel and hadn't been seen or heard from since leaving for his business trip. With all this new information pointing the finger squarely at Neil Prescott and the anniversary of his wife's murder only hours away, it felt like the investigators had their man. Now, their only problem was finding him before he could kill again. I feel bad for the cops here. They're clearly way out of their death. And to be fair, Billy and Stu, as dumb as they both were, they had a clever plan and they came damn close to fooling everyone. So it's hard to blame the cops for getting stuck down that Neil Prescott rabbit hole. I'll tell you one thing. This group of students have to be the most dedicated scholars to ever grace a high school class because even with all that happened the night before, Billy and Sydney still turned up to school the next day. I don't know how they do it in America, but over here in Ireland, that would be enough of an excuse to take a fucking month off everything. Try months. You could milk the PTSD most of the year. Seasonal PTSD that magically eases from June to September. It didn't take long for Billy and Sydney to cross paths that morning. A meeting Sydney knew was inevitable and a meeting where she would have to swallow her pride and admit she had been wrong. But even then, Sydney says she could feel an uneasiness inside her. Her body was instinctively trying to warn her, but after being stung once with the embarrassment of wrongly accusing her boyfriend and questions being asked in regards to Cotton's guilt, she decided to ignore it and put it down to bad nerves because of the ongoing situation. Those nerves would be tested again minutes later when another ghost face would launch a brief attack on her in the school bathroom. Now, Sydney herself has said that this attack could have been another student playing a prank. Mm. Again, this costume was wildly available and cheap. So since the original murder started, every asshole teen in town had purchased a Father Day costume, littering the school halls and cosplay killers just trying to get a laugh out of a very dire situation. The truth is, we just don't know for sure. But we do know that Stu was stalking the halls around the same time, and less than an hour later, he would take his next victim. If he was around stalking a victim, then chances are it was him. As shitty as it is to dress up in the costume, it's a bit of a stretch to then attack the main victim in the story. Considering he was on his way to kill and was in a bathroom stall, do you think she interrupted him getting changed into the costume and he just saw an opportunity to cause us some mayhem? Well, a loony too like Stu wasn't going to be able to help himself in that situation, was he? (laughs) 
Because of the severity of the situation and with no real end in sight, the school was forced to cancel classes and a curfew was put in place in the town. Again, due to the lack of living witnesses, we don't know exactly how it all played out. But at some stage after classes cut out, Stu lived out every angry schoolboy's dream and stabbed his principal to death. And just like Casey, he hung Principal Arthur Himbury from the f- football field goalpost. Guts hanging out like a calling card for the whole student body to bear witness to. This guy's like a ghost face ninja. Like, how is he getting away with all these elaborate displays? Luck. That's it. Just luck. Plus, I suppose if you're called Ghostface, you've got to have some sort of a ghostly kind of thing about Presence. you that you can whoosh in and whoosh on. I can imagine him tiptoeing around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, pure Scooby Doo. Yeah, and all the noises and all. Yeah. Seems like Stu was in the mood to celebrate because after the murder of Principal Himbury, Stu spread word around that he was holding a curfew party at his place. His parents were out of town and school was out. The perfect setup for a major rager. Or was it the perfect setting for the final scenes of his movie? It seemed the reels were about to run out and it was time for the killers to reveal themselves and to put the end of their plan into action. And that's exactly what would happen next. Ooh, exciting. We're in the endgame. And so it was set. Party at Stu's house. A chance for all five friends to have some fun and unwind. To forget about the violence plaguing them and their peers for just a few hours. Did you say five? So that's Billy, Stu, Sidney, Tatum, and who am I leaving out? You're leaving out possibly the best character in this story. And possibly a bigger horror nerd than Billy and Stu combined. The right kind of horror nerd. The type who respects the gore but understands the story is just that. A story designed to entertain. That man is the highly strung but fun-loving nerd, Randy Meeks. Randy was a close friend of Sydney's from a young age and through her relationship with Billy ended up as the fifth wheel in the group. Although he hoped to eventually switch roles with Billy, he had a huge crush on Sydney. Randy worked in a local video store, a job he had been fired and rehired from at least twice. And it was here witnesses remember seeing Billy confront Randy on the day of the massacre. You see, Randy, using slasher movie logic, surmised that Mr. Prescott was only a red herring. He was too obvious and just a prop to distract the audience, allowing the true killer to move freely away from police suspicion. He came to the conclusion that the only person that could be under the mask was Billy, the jealous sex star boyfriend. Only problem was he was telling all this to Stu, and when Billy found out, he decided he needed to put a stop to it. Randy himself said later that the fear he felt that day as Billy and Stu menacingly taunted him in front of the staff and customers in the store should have made it obvious that they were behind everything. But they were all friends. They always fucked around like this. And by the time the confrontation was over, that's just what it seemed like. Three guy friends busting each other's balls. But I think at that stage, Randy was left with, with an uneasiness similar to that of Sydney earlier after Billy got cleared by the police. Like, it couldn't really be them, could it? So red flags flying everywhere around these two guys. Yeah, no one suspected Stu at all. In fact, the only one to suggest he could be the killer was Billy when he was taking the piss in front of their other friends. And Billy had been cleared by police, so he was out of running in the eyes of the public. Even if he did scream psycho at everything he did, he was still seen to have been proven innocent to the Woodsboro locals. The reason I say Randy is one of the best characters we have in this story is simple. We have so much footage from that night of the murder, from the night of the murders, that nearly all stars as Randy. When I say we have a lot of footage, I mean like we have a lot of footage. In fact, 90% of the party is on tape. 
You see, when Deputy Dewey Riley heard about the party from his little sister Tatum, he decided he would go along and sit outside in the police car to deter any would-be killer and to keep an eye out for Neil Prescott, thinking that if he was the true killer, then he might follow his daughter and her friends to this party. To be fair to Deputy Dewey, as far as cops go, he sounds like he was a pretty cool guy. He could have come up sirens blasting, sending all the kids home. Like There was a curfew in effect. But Dewey, not wanting to be a party pooper, decided to just stay on surveillance. Thing is, though, Dewey had struck up a bit of a friendship with Gail Weathers. And Gail, seeing Dewey as a lovable but soft touch, decided to stay close to him. Giving her a straight line to the police investigation and first dibs on breaking news and information. So it wasn't long after Dewey dropped the girls to the party that Gail's news van pulled up to the mocker home. And it didn't take long after that for her to find a reason to get into the house for a snoop around. Using Dewey and her TV celebrity status, she made her way into the party and while the starstruck teens watched her in awe, slipped a small spy camera into the living room, giving us full view and audio that shows us all just how this evening really played out. Can we use any of that footage here? Uh, maybe. you got to remember this is 90s VHS video quality. The sound doesn't translate over very well and being a podcast, that's kind of important. Yeah. So from here on out, there is only really one more incident that we have no witnesses to, and that's the murder of Tatum Riley. At some stage over the evening, Tatum went to the garage to get a beer from an old fridge and just didn't come back. Her body was later found by Sydney and then again by Randy, electrocuted and with her skull crushed, hanging from a cat flap in the open garage door. Investigators eventually came to the conclusion that in an attempt to flee from the ghost-faced Billy, she tried to escape through the flap, getting stuck in the process. And Billy, being more about the scare than he was about blood and guts, decided to take the easy option, simply opening the garage door, killing Tatum without even getting his hands dirty. We know this one was Billy because Stu was inside playing horse at the party at this time. Mm. So Tatum's death was just the beginning of the horror that would run wild through the Mocker house that night. And it wasn't long before Billy and Stu's endgame would be in full swing. Next step was to lead Deputy Dewey to Neil's car, which they had dumped in a nearby wooded area just before calling in a tip to the Sheriff's Department. They would then have to get their final girl alone so they could direct the final scene in their sick movie fantasy. They really had all the little details in place. Thinking to plant Neil's car in the woods by the house, even being confident enough in their timing to get the job done before the police showed up. Like, that all took serious planning and perfect execution. Yeah, nice choice of words. (laughs) Not long after killing Tatum, Billy arrived late at the party, and at this point, news came in that Principal Himbury's body had been found, clearing the curious students out of the mocker home and back to Woodsboro High in hopes of catching a glimpse of their principal's mutilated corpse. The only people left behind were Billy Stu, Randy, Sidney, Gail, Dewey, and Gail's cameraman, Kenny. Gail and Dewey finding the car meant it was time for their plan to get moving. But first, Billy had one more itch he needed to scratch. The perfect little detail to truly solidify their slasher theme and to confirm that if you break the rules in horror movies, then the repercussion would almost always be your death. 
Billy was going to try once more to romance Sydney. One more shot before he finished her. So under the guise of talking about their relationship, Billy and Sydney went to the master bedroom in the mocker home and discussed their recent issues. It was here Sydney said the constant gaslighting from Billy had finally got to her, and convinced she was being frigid and cold towards him, she decided to finally give Billy what he wanted, and in doing so sealed her fate in the eyes of the killer. I already told you, follow Jesus. He's the true savior from Ghostface. Close your legs and open a book. The good book. Sarcasm? Yeah, fucking right sarcasm. Fuck those incel assholes. <laughs> you see, most horror slasher movies are made up of a few basic rules. The three most important being, you may not survive the movie if you have sex. You may not survive the movie if you drink or do drugs. And you may not survive the movie if you say, I'll be right back. Hello, or... Who's there? So basically, don't have fun. Pretty much. I mean, I love a good, hello, who's there? I'll be right back. A bad girl at heart. (laughs) Leaving Randy alone watching movies downstairs, Billy and Stu moved on with their plan, waiting until after Billy had finished knocking boots with Sydney, Ghostface Stu entered the room, attacking the couple and stabbing Billy multiple times right in front of a terrified and shocked Sydney. It's all bullshit. A phony decoy to put Sydney off the scent. Clever positioning and corn syrup really putting their movie knowledge to practice. So Sydney thought she was watching Billy get stabbed, but really he was unharmed. Leaving Billy for dead and in an attempt to save herself, Sydney took off leading Ghostface Stew on a chase scene worthy of a place in any scary movie. Running through almost every room in the first floor of the house, Sydney found herself once again stuck with no other option but to go up. And with Ghostface Stew hot on her heels, Sydney climbed through an attic window to the roof. It was here while trying to fight off Stu, Sydney lost her footing, falling from the roof only to be saved by Mr. Mocker's fishing boat parked in the driveway below her. It was at this point that Sydney looked up to find the body of her best friend hanging lifeless from the garage door. Randy, hearing all the noise, would find Tatum directly after this, just missing Sydney as she ran to find safety. That's a lot to process. You justify death falling from a roof blind luck that the boat is where it is you look up and there's your best friend hanging in the air with her head crushed that's a nightmare Sydney snapping back to reality and realising she still had to get herself to safety spotted Gail's news van it was here she found cameraman Kenny who had been watching the stream from the spy camera in the house you see the thing about this camera was it had a short delay and it lagged by 30 seconds or so I mean, this was 1986, so this tech was still pretty good for its time. Sydney and Kenny watched in horror as Ghostface Sue stalked an unaware Randy, stopping just short of killing him as he had heard Sydney call for help outside and decided to go deal with the more pressing matter first. Again, I remind you, there's a 30 second delay. This meant that by the time they realized that Stu was on his way, he was already there. And for supposedly the second time that night, he killed the man right in front of Sydney, slicing Kenny Brown from ear to ear and letting him bleed out right there on the ground. Oh my God, they killed Kenny. You bastards. <laughs> Before we get on with it, there's a theory, right? Mm-hmm. That, um... And it's something that we're going to come across again when we talk about the... F- fourth massacre that happened in 2011 there's a theory that Stu was actually pretty friendly with randy randy and Stu were both like the real real i mean billy was a bit bit more cooler than the yeah. two of them and the two of them were kind of more movie geek nerds and would have geeked out a lot together and hung yeah. out a lot together and watched movies a lot together yeah there is a theory that Stu never really wanted to kill randy 
that uh, when you see, because they're, they're, they're obviously we have this video footage. Mm-hmm. We see in the video footage Stu coming up behind Randy with the knife. Yeah. But he hesitates. It's the only time you hear of a ghost face hesitating. He's standing over him. It's almost like he stops to think and try and decide whether he's going to do this or not. And as soon as he hears the noise yeah. of Sydney outside, he makes the, the decision to leave, to leave Randy and to go outside. Yeah. And I mean, it wouldn't take him two seconds to drive the knife into Randy, Randy and two or three times and then run outside to deal with Sydney. Yeah. But he made the decision right there and then it was almost like, oh, I get all like the like, jail yeah. free car yeah. and he got away from him. And I mean, even later we'll see again, they're both in a position to, where they're both in the same place together, kind mm. of screaming, your ghost race, no, your ghost race. Yeah. But they, he never attacks him. So, yeah, sure. In the midst of all this chaos, Dewey and Gail returned to the house looking for Neil Prescott. Dewey went inside to investigate while Gail ran to the news van to call the sheriff for help and report the finding of Neil's car. It was here she found the lifeless body of her cameraman. Panicked, she climbed into the van in search of a phone. She was then startled by Randy, who she repeatedly hit with that phone. At this point, Gail had had enough. She'd started the van and took off to get help, only to suddenly be met with a terrified Sydney standing lost in the middle of the road. This caused Gail to swerve off the road and into a tree. Stu claimed later that night he had went to finish her off after, but she looked dead enough to him, so he decided not to waste time and... With the possibility of cops showing up soon, he just moved on. The fact that you point out Stu didn't bother going to finish her off tells me this comes back to bite him in the ass sometime in the near future. Sure does. After seeing Gail crash, Sydney ran back towards the house, screaming for Dewey for help. Help he wouldn't be able to give, because when Sydney reached the house, she found Dewey stumbling from the front door with a knife buried deep in his back. Oh, poor Dewey. Sydney was lost. She had nowhere left to turn and didn't know who she could trust. As she stood there, most definitely in a deep state of shock, Randy and Stu, now out of costume, came back on the scene, both screaming accusations at each other. How could she know? Like, it could be either of them or both of them, for all she knows. I just shoot them both in the leg and wait for the cops to figure out. Like, Randy's a horror nerd, but I think he'd respect the logic. Sydney pulled herself together long enough to grab Dewey's sidearm, keeping it firmly pointed in their direction and keeping Stu sedated long enough for her to get back inside the house for a brief moment of relief. In the heat of the moment, Sydney couldn't be sure which of the two to believe. But if she had been able to get a second to think, she might have remembered that only a few minutes earlier she had watched as Ghostface Stu had been lurking behind Randy, knife out and ready to strike. But the adrenaline, the confusion and the shock had obviously wiped this from her mind momentarily. Shit, I even forgot about that and we just spoke about it. So you could get how Sydney probably wouldn't remember either. Considering everything that's happened and the fact that directly after seeing the Randy Ghostface Stu footage, she witnessed Kenny's murder. Yeah, super traumatic stuff. Like, there's no way she's thinking straight. And the real traumatic stuff is still to come. This is where the real fun part happens. Well, at least for us, it definitely wasn't fun for the rest of them involved. As Sydney stood there, her mind racing, trying to put the pieces together, the supposedly stabbed Billy stumbled down the stairs and into her waiting arms. Billy then convinced her to give him the gun and let Randy into the house, confirming Stu to be a killer along with himself. Yeah, doesn't sound too good for Randy. No, as soon as Billy had the gun, he shot Randy, revealing himself to Sydney as the killer. Luckily, he only got Randy in the shoulder, and although his part in this story ends here, he lives on to fight another day and will feature some more in episode two. Awesome. I like Randy. 
you like Randy, why would you be happy that he features in another massacre? Surely you'd prefer that he, you know, settled on, had a family, lived a happily ever after. Actually, yeah, that's what I want. Is that what happened to him in the end? Josh? (laughs) With Randy down and Stu creeping up behind her, Sydney's situation looked truly dire. And as if things weren't bad enough for the unwilling final girl, she had to listen to these two psychos as they revealed their whole master plan like two dopey bomb villains. She listened in shock as Billy revealed that not only were they the ones responsible for the current string of murders, but it had been them that had killed her mother one year earlier. How could you ever trust another human being again? And your mother and all your friends are dead and your boyfriend is responsible. What a mindfuck. Yeah, and you, the man you just literally gave your virginity to turns into a monster almost instantly after the deed is done. Mm, probably not the best first experience. Like, I don't envy her next boyfriend. <laughs> Funny you say that, but before you ask, next episode. Oy. Neil, who had been tied up and gagged on the residence that whole night, was then bought out for the final scene. It was here that Billy and Stu made their fatal mistake. You see, the two knew they couldn't be the only unharmed survivors at the party. It would draw way too much suspicion. So they worked out the safest places to stab and they took it in turns maiming each other for an alibi. The idiots did all this before killing Sydney and Neil. I mean, talk about giving your opponent the upper hand. This is insane. It can't be real. Um, (coughs) Yeah. Uh, anyway, as this all went on, Gail, still alive but fairly beat up, managed to make her way back to the house, hearing the mad ravings of Billy and Stu as she entered. She noticed the gun sitting out on the counter right by the kitchen door and took her chance. Unfortunately for her, in all the excitement of getting one up in the killers, she forgot to check the safety, allowing Billy to incapacitate her and again regain control of the gun. But Gail's efforts were not a total waste. The distraction she caused allowed Sydney and Neil a chance to hide. And from that hiding place, Sydney was able to contact the sheriff's department, giving them her location and the true identity of the ghost face killers. With all loss, Billy flew into a rage, tearing through the house searching for Sydney. If he was going down, he was going to take her with him. While Billy searched Stu, weak with blood loss from the alibi stabbings, sunk into denial and began sobbing like a child. Oh, now I feel bad for the killer again. Like, I just want to give him a hug. If you want to be covered in blood, and there's always a chance that he'll decide to get one more notch in his belt and kill you while you're close to him, uh, you know? Yeah, fuck him. true process of elimination Billy narrowed it in on the closet under the stairs exactly the place Sydney had been hiding in inside Sydney had found one of the ghost face masks and an eventual twist of fate exploded from the closet wearing it stabbing Billy twice in the chest with the top of an umbrella then without a second to spare Sydney had Stu to deal with they wrestled around for a minute or two before Sydney could get the better of him there she found herself right by the living room TV with Stu laid out on the floor in front of her she finally incapacitated Stu through electrocution by dropping the TV directly on his head. The end. Not the end. Billy wasn't done yet, and with one last ounce of energy, he wrestled Sydney to the ground, raising his knife over his head, and bang! She didn't make the same mistake twice, and Gail turned off the safety, landing a shot directly into Billy's chest before he could bring the knife down on Sydney. And if that wasn't enough to seal the deal, Sidney Prescott put a bullet square between Billy's eyes, officially putting an end to the, to the run of the OG killers Billy Loomis and Stu Mocker. Wow, what a story. A clever plan. Nearly perfect, but they would never have gotten away with that. What makes you say that? Gail's camera. Even if they had killed Sidney and Neil, 
and convinced the cops that they were victims, the cops would have eventually came across the camera and they would have been caught. True, but they would have probably had time to set the scene and get rid of the camera before anyone got there. If they had known the camera was there at all, like it was a spy cam. No one but Gail, Kenny and Sydney knew it was there. And I think that's evident from the fact that they stabbed each other before Sydney and Neil. They were confident that the scene was already set. They surely knew that by the time they took care of the Prescotts, all they'd have the energy to do is hit the ground and wait for the cops and paramedics to arrive. Shit, I think you're right. Regardless of how the ending went, Billy and Stu would have been caught and would either be on death row right now or dead by lethal injection. Either way, the story of the OG killers is over, but Ghostface lives on. If you're hungry for more, Ghostface episodes 2 and 3 are up and ready to stream or download. If you like all that, check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash IAAPod for loads of bonus content and extra episodes. And follow us on everything at Alive Alive Pod. And that's it. The reboot is done. We provided you with the quality you deserve. Check out Ghostface Part 2 and 3 rebooted, remastered, remade for your listening pleasure. Also, if you want to contact us, we are available by email at itsalivealivepod at gmail.com. So until next week, I'm Dr. Harley Ray, Smokenstein THC. And I'm Amy Rose. And this is the last time I'm recording this story. It's Alive Alive, all the guts and gore with none of the guilt. See you next week. Same Alive Alive time, same Harvest channel. Love you. Bye-bye. Hey, lady. I love you. Bye-bye.